They turned out to be completely unreliable assholes. Hey, Tim. Hey, Ryan. (laughs) Good to see you again here. Hey, and welcome everyone listening. Sorry, I can't see you. Same way I can't see, I can see Tim here, but all the same, we're happy to have you here. And where is here? Whether you're new or old, here is Dismembering Horror. Episode 164 of Dismembering Horror. It is We Are the Podcast Shoe, where myself, Ryan McDuffie, and myself, Tim Aslan. That's right. We dismember a horror film every week. In fact, we talk about what worked for us, what did not work for us, and anything else we subjectively found interesting or noteworthy about a, you guessed it, horror film. All under the spirit and fun and guise of just friends getting together to watch a movie and, well, a horror movie and, you know talk about it afterwards because there is so much to gleam from as we like to say delving into the darkness and we come at it from just by default of who we are how our brains work uh we come at it from a filmmaking lens largely because that's uh that's where our brains and spirits are at ain't that the truth (laughs) anything to add what we're doing here (laughs) oh no you know just hanging out Hanging out. Just living. Hanging out with the family. Hanging out with the fun. Do you know what that was a reference to? (laughs) No. Uh, Birdemic. Different strokes. No, Birdemic. Birdemic? You don't know about Birdemic? No. (laughs) It's one of those so bad it's good movies. It's like horrible. I say horrible as a director because he's apparently Wait, is it the one with the like... The worst CGI ever. Yeah, they're like gifs of birds, not even CGI. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, there's I've, a, I've seen th- clips from it. Yeah, there's like a, a weird. There's a scene where like some guys singing that random song, hanging out with the family. Anyway, we aren't here for a birdemic today. <laughs> We're here for other, uh, even more impactful horror uh franchises that's epidemic. Right. we're actually here for this october doing our october special our third ever october special we thought it'd be fun to touch up on what are the three i think widely considered major horror franchises being halloween friday the 13th and a nightmare on elm street And to cover all three of those, but still work in four films, we thought it'd be fun to explore and fulfill the unique niche of the part threes of these three franchises. So last week we did Friday the 13th 3, part three. And then today we are covering A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors from 1980. 87. We went from 82 to 87 here. And then we have two Halloween part threes coming up next. So then uh, next we're doing Halloween three season of the witch. And then the new in the 
chronology, if you're counting the original Halloween is the first one, the second chronology of the remake, so the second of the new trilogy coming out is the third in the new series of Halloween movies. Oh that my makes God. sense. <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> it does, though. It's just hard to say, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. All right. Well, either way, you, you'll get it. <laughs> well, Tib, uh, yeah, we'll be touching up about all sorts of part three related things, too, as we as we continue this journey. These films, I feel like, have a special uh, just kind of place among the fandom where they, they have their, their fans. They're kind of come at a position that's unique, often just trying to, they, they often fall in a position of uh, cementing the franchises one hmm. way or the other. Um, oh, what I was also going to say, just to make it even more confusing on the Halloween, there being the two Halloween threes, you could also kind of say there's another Halloween three. If you count Halloween four, the return of Michael Myers, you could say in the original canon, that is the part three of the Michael Myers story. So, oh my God. So there, (laughs) that, that would mean (laughs) that there's the first part three. There's a reboot part three, what you're talking about, um, which is the fourth installment of the original canon. That would be a second part three. Then, so season of the witch would be the first part three. Yes. Halloween, the fourth Halloween, the one that came after season of the witch would also be a part three. Is what you're saying. So that's two. Um, the Halloween kills will theoretically be a part three. If you use the original canon, original film as your starting point. Yes. So that's three. But then we're also getting a sequel, a trilogy from the new stories, Halloween, Halloween kills. And I think, I don't know what the the third one is going to be called, but that's considered its own trilogy. So therefore that would be a fourth part three (laughs) yep so good luck everybody if i had our little bell here i'd be dinging it (laughs) right now (laughs) it's somewhere um great Uh, so so i had one bit of sorry the 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 moments the moment's gone wow it's broken (laughs) (laughs) so tim to follow up from our episode last week too on Friday the 13th, part three. Uh, just, I don't know, just I wanted to, to, I thought it was really interesting what we honed in on there, kind of what you were largely saying about a large part of the just like innate instinctual appeal of the Friday the 13th movies is mm, having mm-hmm. a outsider who does not fit in killing off archetypes, right? Yeah. I was wondering uh, if you thought like w- what that kind of meant that we defaulted and only used the word archetypes versus referring to them as stereotypes. Because I realized they're so mm-hmm. often just referred to that way. Is it just, is, no. is there something more kind of just plain or derogatory to use stereotypes? Or like how would you differentiate the usage of those two words? And do you have any thoughts on why we were saying archetypes instead of stereotypes? No, I think actually that's a pretty good distinction that 
is more accurate. They they are less archetypes because archetypes are more like, you know, storytelling um, constructs. The hero, the elder, the whatever, you know what I mean? The, the heroine, that kind of stuff. So in a way, yeah, we are almost misusing that term because they are stereotypes or tropes maybe is a, a better word. Um, like cinematic tropes. Um, the only reason I think we you still kind of can use archetype, even though maybe it's not quite appropriate, is that they're based on exist like like characters that exist in real life, right? Like they're they are versions of real life sort of things that we know. Like they're like we we know the jock. Like everybody grew up with a guy who fit that mold or or girl. Um, you know, the cheerleader or the popular person or the nerd or the, you know, misanthrope or whatever. Like, yeah, I think it's you know, it's a little interchangeable, but yeah, if we're being really specific and like try to be super accurate, archetype is not the right word. <laughs> So, oh well. Yeah, I think maybe maybe I was I was the one who first used the word and started our in episode trend. But I think why I why I like it or default to it, it's not just because of this kind of like uh, default negative stereotype. The word stereotype has, um, but archetype. I always wonder. I'm not a literary person or history person or mythology. You know, I haven't studied any of that stuff. But I don't know, just as far as how I think of the word archetype, like, yeah, we have those, like how you're laying it out, those, are, you know, are classic sort of more Greek mythology or, or Joseph Campbell archetypes. Maybe that's the sort of association you're mm-hmm. getting at. But I just kind of think of how like movies and stories work is like, don't, don't those sort of, don't archetypes kind of, as time goes on, become like, like, can't they not only to stay exist, but can't they also blend and become more nuanced just sort of as our storytelling and, and, you know, yeah. artistic sensibilities do. Cause like, I don't know if there's a nerd and a jock, you know, like that's in those old, you know, sure maybe, there are. I, I mean, Apollo, Apollo is a jock. Okay, great, great. You know what right. I mean? Like that he's, he's has all of those, qualities that we kind of associate with the jock he's arrogant he's big and strong he's a bit misogynistic you know like he kind of puffs himself up and stomps around like a like a big dumb jerk a lot right (laughs) so like i think in a way it is interchangeable i mean really the like you look up the word archetype and the first definition is just a very typical example of a certain person or thing. Like it's very vague, but you know, it's origin does come out of this sort of mythological reference point. Right. Um, so well, I don't know. I think we're I, fine. And I think you're right. There is nuance and things change, but they still say, stay the same. You know what I mean? It's like, right. Or, or maybe I was getting more like new ones are created and that's part of the sort of, where these films can help function. I don't know. I think these, like a big part of these films too, I see and why I think Friday 13th movies can be just get made forever with this formula 
is because of these sort of new archetypes or stereotypes emerging. Like, like if we just did a quick sort of uh, thought exercise of if we were to make a Friday the 13th movie now, who would be those kinds of new archetype stereotypes? And I think that, like, let's mm-hmm. say, I could see now rather than sort of in the old ones, you have the stoner and then you also have, let's say, the cheerleader. I think having the stoner cheerleader is totally like a fair like person that maybe we could recognize as an almost new stereotype Correct. archetype these days. Well, so, I would argue that the the um, the trappings of the archetype are what changes, but the archetype itself does not. So what I mean by that is like the qualities that we associate with the jock tend to be arrogance, um, bullheadedness, uh, maybe a little bit of like, I don't know, um, what's another good quality of theirs or just quality of that, like gregarious um, confident, like things like that. Those qualities in a different time frame may have been what, you know, the, the nerd, the thing that we associate as the nerd, maybe in like, you know, the 17th century or something like that, the, the quote unquote academic possessed all those qualities. So sure that that would be that archetype then, but it's it's still the same. The qualities are what I think make up the archetype, rather than the literal, uh, you know, positioning of that character. So maybe the word stereotype just also has the connotation that's more helpful in this case than of like where it just inherently can be more nuanced. Like, well, I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, I just thought that was. <laughs> something we didn't touch on but i thought was um good to bring up too and also to say yeah how largely i think part of the formula that works so well for the friday the 13th is at any given point when you make a new one they're just sort of a way to go what are our new stereotypes Mm -hmm. or or types whatever you want to call it and let's have fun killing them off yeah (laughs) but let's have fun recognizing them first Um, yeah definitely you're gonna yeah. you're gonna have to adjust to the the it's you're doing two things you're taking the universality of personality and the various you know types of personalities and then you are putting the clothes of the era onto those yeah whatever that may be like when i was in high school in my particular high school the quote unquote like stereotypical jock was not admired. Like they were, if you, you know, kind of, (laughs) if you, if you trotted around arrogantly in my high school, you got like cut down (laughs) very fast by like this whole other group of people who were hyper intellectual, but like very gregarious. Um, just like super smart people who with like super sharp wit. I don't know if that's a product of being like the end of Gen X or something like that. I don't know, but it was a different vibe. Like we didn't really have the, you know, the, the eighties, um, 
stereotypes that are in some of these movies, they didn't exist. They were considered hackneyed. Like if, if somebody tried to act like that, they, they got trashed in any form. So it was a different, it just was a different thing. And I'm sure, you know, you're 10 years younger than me. It was probably a totally different thing too. Also regionally, it was a different thing. Yeah. We didn't have surfer dudes in my school. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like that just didn't exist. So I don't Uh, know. Yeah. Oh, it could, could go on. But just one thing you said there real quick, that was interesting. You know, you say it's just putting different clothes on the same traits and just sort of mix and matching the different traits. So just in that example, you could say we always have new clothes. As, as time goes on, we always have available to us not just all clothes that have come before, but new clothes too. So I don't know. Yeah. That just helped illustrate I think what we're talking about, how things get more nuanced and change over time. Definitely. We have a whole other film to talk about here. So you want to watch our trailer and get into it? (laughs) Cool. All right. We already said it, but here we go again. Directed by Chuck Russell with a screenplay by Wes Craven, Bruce Wagner, Frank Darabont, and... Chunk, Chuck, Chunk, Chuck Russell. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> From 1987, A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. Sets the tone, sure. Well, Tim, per our rating system, I'd love to know, would we tell ourselves to avoid this film, stream this film, rent this film, or buy this film? <laughs> I want to know if we should just officially add it this, at this point. We often uh, have a box set buy uh, sub rating within buy it, but... Anything within all that, what would you tell yourself in regards to A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors? I'd box it by this. I'd probably, um, I'd probably just rent it as an individual thing, but I'd box it by it for sure. I mean, I just, I like the first one so much, and I like that there is this sort of continuing story throughout them, even though they they wind a little bit and they do some crazy stuff. It all feels like it fits. So the box set, which a friend of mine had for a long time and I would just take it. Um, it's worth having for sure in my yeah. mind. So yeah, I, I'd just be a box set by. Great. Yeah. I'm a box set by, I also could just be like a, 
a bye-bye if I just look at them in the context of the first one, this third one, and um, New, New Nightmare. Nightmare. Yeah. Just as these, like, the Heather Lathing Camp, yep. like, feels more just kind of, it's all canon officially, but somehow feels more official with that Wes Craven involvement. Totally. Uh, but yeah, I mean, just like I said with the last one, these are the major franchises. You need to just have them on the shelf for easy access to do your marathon every few years or however long. So Agreed. And this one, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it's like I could just say that same thing then about the, you know, parts two and five and six. So I will, I, I should mention though, this one in particular, I do think... It's great. It's right after. It's I don't know if it's right up there for me, but it's also great, just in different ways compared to the first one. So, um, not to necessarily lump it with the other ones. I totally get and am on board with the uh, all the fans who give this one um, the praise. I think it's 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 well deserved the praise this one especially gets. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Cool. It's not as gory as I. I think my brain said it was going to be my kid brain. Like I've seen it a couple times since I was a kid, but I, whenever somebody says like dream warriors, I, I just, in my mind, I'm like, Oh shit. Like that's mm-hmm. the, that's the brutal one, but it, I, it, it was fine. It wasn't that brutal. I think I have a theory for why that is, but that will tie into a later discussion. Okay. <laughs> Great. But for now, just so we can all get on the same page here with each other and our listeners about what we even watched, would you be down to give us a brief summary of what happened in this film? Sure. <laughs> um, let's see. So a couple years, I mean, it's like five years after the events of the first um, Nightmare on Elm Street with... Nancy Thompson and all all that fun stuff. In the same town, we have another teenager named Kristen played by, um, what's her name? Patricia uh, Arquette. Thank you. Patricia Arquette, a young Patricia Arquette. And she is suffering from some nightmares and trying desperately not to fall asleep because, you know, who wants to have nightmares? And... Blah, blah, blah. Her mom's annoying. She falls asleep and, of course, encounters Freddy. And Freddy um, slices her wrists in the dream. In actuality, she slices her own wrist in the bathroom. And her mom says, I've had it with you, teenager. You're going to the asylum. So she sends... So she sends her to the asylum, the the asylum that is apparently, or the wing of the asylum maybe, that is just for suicidal teenagers who also have sleep conditions. <laughs> so, And who also, we learn later, are all the Elm Street children, the children yeah. of the parents who killed Freddy. That's right. So they're all, they're all having a, as the doctors say, a shared mass hallucination hysteria whatever isn't that what they always say <laughs> yep yeah so so staying in true truly in line with the uh 
the broader umbrella of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. The parents are all kind of assholes. <laughs> the adults are all kind of assholes. They don't listen to the teenagers and people die because of it. So, um, so Kristen is there and you've got a whole group of, of fun characters that end up being our dream warriors. Um, but one of them right off the bat, um, dies in his, in his dreams at the hands of, of Freddie and Nancy Thompson, who has, uh, progressed in her life as now a, a sleep specialist. I think you could say she's psycho psychologist, sleep specialist, something like that. She pops up to help out, um, as an, I guess she's an intern. Anyway, so she's an intern at this hospital. She knows what's up. Yeah. Nobody believes her, but the doctor there, you know, takes a liking to her. So I guess, you know, he, he gets on board and, you know, it, it becomes a battle of the group trying not to get picked off by Freddie and come coming together to find their dream powers and fight Freddie in the dream world using partially Kristen's dream power, which is that she can actually like pull people into collectively into the same dream, which is pretty sweet. Um, and then we learn that through a, <laughs> through a, um, specter nun that we get a little backstory on Freddie, which is that a nun was, uh, locked in a asylum with a hundred or so, um, insane men, killers and such. And they brutally rape her. And the product of that incident was uh, Freddy. He was the child born out of that horrible, whatever you want to call it, horrible thing. And so she gives a little clue that if you get Freddy's remains, his actual remains that the Elm Street parents, you know, cooked, and you bury it on hallowed ground, that will um, send him to wherever he needs to go and stop hurting kids. So you got kind of two groups going for the uh, for the for the kill, and they do it. Some of them die. <laughs> Some of them survive. Nancy survives. Patricia Arquette survives. Kincaid survives. Joey survives because he finds his voice. That's his dream power. <laughs> yep. Saves them all. <laughs> it's all fun. It's all a lot of fun. Yep. As a, as a Nightmare on Elm Street movie should be. Agreed. Great. Well done. So, well, to set, off, to set us off into our next section here, in the spirit of the film itself, there's a Edgar Allan Poe quote that starts the film. Mm. So how about I read that? Sleep, those little slices of death, how I loathe them. <laughs> All right, here we go. First section. What worked? What worked? What worked for you? What worked for you? It worked like a charm, Smith. What worked? What worked? 
Well, as we often do, how about some overall things? Whether it's for this movie, the the Freddy character premise, all that stuff. Let's maybe start there. Hmm. We got we got Nancy back. That's a big deal. Yeah, that's deal. big. I feel like she really holds it together. And <laughs> that moment too, it's talking about, you know, the the moments that sort of hold a distinct memory from uh, every time we watch it. Her first appearance is such a hero moment. Yeah. Where she finishes singing the the nursery rhyme. She picks up singing it. She appears in the doorway. She's standing there with those like that shoulder pad jacket, like woo, giant just, hair. Yeah. <laughs> it's just such a like audience like applause moment. Yeah. I love it. Um, but no, she's seriously great. I mean, I don't know. We don't have an alternate term for it yet, but she's my favorite final girls for sure. Mm-hmm. Her and Ashley Lawrence and Hellraiser maybe are my favorites of the, okay. the sort of bigger franchises. Uh, but it's how she, she's just that, that, that relatable balance of not just, I don't know. I don't know. In, in a lot of ways, but how she just seems to like so know what's up and be able to sort of stand her ground when she needs to with everyone around her. But it's not like she's, but she's still clearly being as deeply affected as you would be. Like she's, she's not immune to the trauma. She's not, you know, a sort of exaggerated hero in that sense. Um, yeah. So like, I mean, I feel like that's exactly what you want. And she's just, I don't know, something that's just kind of, um, I don't know what what would the word be? I guess I guess more of just I don't know other other synonyms for how you could say relatable or just kind of likable. I don't know. It has all those traits going for her, and <laughs> her stepping into this one, uh, it's it's great. Yeah, she really makes it a smoothie for me. Yeah, you know when when she appeared and initially initially you know sort of whatever like jumps in, um. <laughs> Woo. I immediately was like, oh, I, I so much prefer this version of her than in the first one. In, in the first one, she's young. I mean, she's a teenager and she acts like a teenager and she can be kind of annoying and like almost just hyperly freaked out, which is appropriate for the movie. It works in the movie. But I always just was kind of like annoyed Right, because um, all she's freaking out is about Johnny Depp and him dying. <laughs> yeah, kind or whatever. of, yeah. Nobody believes me. Um, so the second she arrives in this movie, she just so much more. She's un, she's an adult. She's grounded. She feels like she's carrying this sort of weight with her. Um, well, she has that conviction now, rather yeah. than being like nobody believes me. She's just sort of like, okay, well, but I can believe me as much as I need to. Yeah, so it becomes just it for me. It, it it's a much more palatable representation of that character. Like it's a evolved, obviously, and grown up version of the character. So yeah, I really I agree. I I was like very pleasantly, you know, not surprised, but like excited to get this newer version of her. It was, yeah, it's fun. She's great. And to 
stay on the track of our characters here. I feel like, hey, it's in the title, Dream Warriors. Uh, that's the other of uh, their big pull for this film. It are yeah. the Dream Warriors? It's so great. I was, you know, we have our our Wikipedia's we we read and pull from and refer to for these. Uh, they have a picture of the the one of the two night um video games made off of this movie where it's oh a, yeah it's a character selection screen of like you know the different dream warriors and i mean that just that that kind of i mentioned that cuz it kind of encap- encapsulates the appeal for me where it's like each of the dream warriors they are kind of our 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 differing heroes that we 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 are rooting for and sort of i don't know it's in the spirit of like character character selection in the video game as far as the yeah. different kind of types they are down to they're explicitly use the word they have their own superpowers that they bring to the table and it's just so much fun because it's so built in and the movie does this well of just the thing where it's like well you when they all have their own superpowers and attitudes and character it's all about how are they gonna use those together right. to save the day in the end. And the movie does it. It fulfills that uh, promise of the premise. And they're all great, and they make it fun. And the way they're we got a group going through it all together is really cool. Yeah, and what I really like about this setup in particular is, and in general, I think I tend to like this. Uh, it's actually why I like Marvel Comics. When you When you take people who are just people but who have who like in the in the face of society tend to be either overlooked or looked down on or whatever in particular teenagers but teenagers oh they're teenagers who are you know they're too much for their parents to handle so like just throw them in the in the asylum bin you know like there's something very relatable about that and like it's so indicative of this this attitude I think that has existed in the past and hopefully is sort of falling away of like teenagers need to just like know their place and, and, and conform to the rules. And it's like, Hey, just so everybody's aware, teenagers are nuts, but they're nuts for a reason, right? They're, they're going through a time in their life that is the most confusing thing. And in a world that doesn't make any sense. Right. So like, it's so relatable to have these people. And if you, if the adults just took, you know, 15 minutes to be like, what's actually bothering you, you would be fine. Like everybody could kind of just get on the same page and maybe be a little bit more, I don't know, like compassionate. Um, But this is such a common thing and so relatable as a teenager, because none of us feel like we belong and so in a way it's almost like the upside down version of the night or of the friday the 13th construct whereas we're not in this we're relating to the the, the misanthropic characters though the outsiders instead of reveling in the tropey stereotypical characters that are the bullies in our lives typically we're relating to the bullied in this one and freddie becomes sort of the ultimate bully of he's just he is the bully in your high school who loves to just mess with you and like say dumb one-liner jokes and like but be awful when it comes down to it and kind of like you know lord over you all the time he's inescapable 
He takes pleasure in the torment itself. Right. So I love that. I just think that, I think that's probably why as a franchise, I like this as much as I do. Um, Because that construct is great because I just like it when a group comes together, you know, (laughs) and like, and like beats up the bully. It's great. So yeah, that alone. and, And like the individual characters are all really fun. Um, and the actors I almost the wish kids. we got more of them. Yeah. But, you know, it works. Yeah. <laughs> I know what you mean. Okay, well, yeah, you brought up a couple things in there that are kind of like overlapping, I think, uh, just, just reasons why this works so well or just other kind of standout, standout things going on in this film. Let me just get to it. So you mentioned how the first one and this one, you know, it sort of rests on that idea of parents not believing in the kids, not even you know, willing to sit and listen and give them the benefit of the doubt because this is impossible, whatever the reasons they say, whatever. So just as far as in a being a third one, how do you continue that idea? How do you keep pushing it? Can you? And I think they show they can just by that sheer premise of, going like, well, just a what-if exercise. All right, who are the last group of kids that sort of parent-slash-authority figures would ever believe in the circumstance? You know, uh, where it's not just as it's not just the first one anymore and the second one of parents not believing their kids, authority, you know, authority figures in that sense. But to have them be in a mental institution where it's just that much easier for the parents and the authority figures just to be like, I don't believe you. No one's going to believe you. This is just this. This is just the science, whatever it is they go on about and sort of dig their heels into. It's just that much more of something to overcome, which is not just, you know, inherently good storytelling, but also within the context of being the third one, an excellent progression. Yeah, yeah, when you you take it out of the neighborhood and you put it into I guess you could call it like institutional authoritarianism, authoritarianism, institutional authoritarianism or something like that, right? Like where it's like just not that the medical community isn't trying, but they like any institution often get blinded by their own certitude of expertise. And especially again when you have adults versus kids you see this a lot in in our society with adults in particular patriarchal sort of construct adults and anybody who doesn't fit into that patriarchal hierarchy kind of mindset whether it be women the elderly people of color like they're so often not believed when they say i'm having this experience And like, this is, you know, another version of that. And I think when it's kids, there's even a bigger kind of easily understandable gap where it's like kids never feel like they're being heard. Well, (laughs) it's it's not as the viewer, the kid viewer, like we all are like, oh, yeah, I remember that feeling. And I think that's an important distinguishment. We said it's not just um, it is about being heard, not necessarily believed. It's, it's sort of just yeah. going into them and being like, it's not about believing one way or the other. You don't even have to, th- you shouldn't think in those terms if you're trying to connect with someone. It's just about, okay, this 
They just want me to listen. I don't have to complicate it <laughs> right, more right. than that. It's not going to affect my beliefs or anything. And actually, you kind of just did the transition there for me. But the other thing that's more specific and this the setting and story and context of this film that falls under all that is, yeah, the the institution, the the mental hospital as a representation of all that and sort of the horror that they pull from that where it's like, God, just, I mean, I mean, there's, there's, <laughs> I, I want to keep it in the realms of this film, but it's, it, it does exploit those sort of the sort of inherent ineptitude of all that. Like, like we see in Hex, in Hexen, you know, we just talk about we're able to sort of so easily identify just how messed up and wrong and inhuman all the treatments are. But like, you know, this movie came out in our lifetime. This wasn't a depiction of some ancient, you know, 100 years ago method or whatever. Yet, what was easy for us to overlook is just because it is new or modern, it doesn't mean it's actually any better. It's still right. rooted in a broken way of treating people by non-treatment by symptom addressing i guess is the way so it's like you have those scenes and that's just a perfect encapsulation of the freddy krueger thing too of just them not actually helping them but like when uh uh, patricia arquette's character at the beginning I, i love her as our sort of our leading character too Kristen, when she's you know freaking out about these dreams she's been having their response is just like you know, sedate her. Right. <laughs> it's like all you could do. But I'm just, I'm, I don't know. I'm feeling her more where it's just like, she's not unwarranted in the amount that she's freaking out yet. Their response is more just what's so, what's so scary about it is because they are well intentioned, but what they're essentially doing is just being like, we don't understand yet what you're going through, how to actually deal with it. So in the meantime, we're just going to, just sort of, I don't know, p- p- like what else they do with their, we're just going to put you in the, what do they call it? We're going to put you the in quiet the quiet space or the quiet room till you get what you till till you get better, which is just like this, this, I don't know, uh, this paternalistic, just kind of like daddy knows best. I don't know, just way of trying to get someone to, to, not change for the better, but to adhere to your own broken system. Well, wel- welcome to the the root cause of every human conflict in all <laughs> <Yeah>. of history. <laughs> Not listening right. to the other pre- person and just being like, we're just going to throw you in a, a cell or we're just going to fight you. Because, yes, because we're right. And you're wrong. Yeah. Um, I, I really so, like this this sort yeah. of to jump off of what you're saying, like the institution part is so smart because it is effectively an extension of the prison of the mind that Freddie creates, right? Like it's it is that same thing in the real mm-hmm. world in a way, right? Mm-hmm. They are imprisoned in this in this institution, of this asylum. And they aren't being heard. They're losing autonomy. They're losing control. And, you know, when you throw those two things together, it's even more terrifying. It's it's a really good construct. Yeah. Well, I guess you go down the list here still of some other more overall things for this film, these films. Um, the... 
Well, like, I guess, you know, in the the spirit of this being a third one, you start to go, okay, well, do you, how do you add to the mythos and story of our, of, I guess, essentially Freddy here in uh, an effective way that only adds and doesn't retract, which is, dit- detract, which is a, a tricky balance. Yeah. And it's cool. What I think this this film does it so well is it's kind of got what were we just talking about where I was trying to make I think it was our last episode actually where I was just trying to make no no it was episode before that where I always kind of bring up like it works for me in a film if you're talking about supernatural I was talking about this for Candyman I it was a a follow-up thing I said Mm -hmm. you know what I said uh it's not a Candyman isn't a he Candyman's the whole damn hive you know like that that says more without actually defining it in a knowable way more lending it more power yet still satisfying us with a bit more to chew on for this mythos so like the details in this one where they just we get that story that you set up of uh the 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 son of um a a hundred crazed (laughs) you know convicts or whatever um and then referring to him openly just as the boogeyman and the idea that when the parents killed him, Nancy says something like they actually just made him more powerful. Like she doesn't need to get sort of bogged down in trying to have any kind of more the language of, oh yes, well he is a, a ghost. Like it's like, no, we, we don't know about that. That's why we have the word boogeyman and just kind of, (laughs) <laughs> that encapsulates it all. So so check, check for me for this film of both expanding on the mythos without uh, ruining the ruining it at the same time and over-explaining, but keeping the supernatural element just that much stronger for it. Yeah, and, and sort of similar to Friday the 13th, essentially the, the um questionable actions although maybe understandably motivated to murder a child murderer the parents that is um because that's really not the way to deal with it it unlocks this i guess curse or this spirit or whatever you want to call what freddy is um and i think that's actually where probably finding and i'm curious now about the halloween movies how that'll play out obviously it doesn't in the season of the witch one but but are all of these movies is sort of a commonality between horror films of this ilk the unlock like that a wrong was done and a curse was unlocked and that's sort of the origin of all of these things i don't know yet we'll find out but it's interesting that these two in particular that came out of essentially the same era really are doing that, but they're doing it in totally different directions. And I think that's great. It's probably part of why they're so popular and why you can extend them as far as you can. Like you can have sequels because like <laughs> it's just built in. It's an unstoppable, unbeatable force. Right. It's all representative of uh, society's uh, it's a grand, grand way to put it. But our, our 
how we no longer live in a world where that sort of the, the dominator beat the other, you know, rooted in violence, whether it involves actual violence or not, that idea of separation, that that's not, that's not how we're going to get out of it anymore. Yeah. So it's like that. And I don't know, horror films are interesting because they test those limits of just sort of our own belief in how willing we're like, we totally feel and get why the parents did what they did. It's totally. Really, you know, and Freddy's the most, it's the most horrible, you know, atrocity you can commit. Um, but then it, that's why it's so fascinating though, to see that that didn't exactly work. In fact, they just sort of sowed the seeds of this everlasting evil. Um, yeah. Yeah. I feel like there's some movie quote or something that's about like, evil can um can never kill evil or something like that uh i don't know what that would be only the light can do that it's what is that from it's something like that or darkness can never <laughs> kill darkness well, only the light can do that it's that kind of it's idea funny. Though. It's, it's the kind of thing that i feel like like all of our books and movies kinds of end on and arrive at is the spirit in in so many things yet I don't know. A lot of people still uh, have difficulty getting on board with that because it's only in the Harry Potter movies. It's only in Star Wars. Anyway, bring it, oh, bring it it's back, a, it's Ryan. Martin Luther King. <laughs> <laughs> there that's, you go. that's what it is. Yeah, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only the light can do that. I don't know if that's. I mean, it's being accredited to him as I do a very quick Google search. So I hopefully mean, that's, that's I mean, somebody, true because sometimes somebody quotes like that. Not. Like though it's the Jimi Hendrix one, you know, only when the power of love overcomes the love of power. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. that was Huey all, Lewis. All this <laughs> <laughs> power of love. <laughs> anyway, great. So bring, yeah, good way to bring I, it I back to the eighties. Bring it back to this film. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, no. So uh, some other. Now, I guess the other the thing about these films that we were even mentioned last time that makes them unique amongst all these franchises is their their dream usage, the lucid dreaming, the dreams overlapping with our reality. That that, that is, is our my core absolute setup. favorite thing in these movies. <laughs> yeah, when they don't show the moment of somebody falling asleep, there is no cut. Yeah, and then they're just in the dream is the it is the coolest feeling to me oh that like the mean, non-transition transition yeah. is so cool well how it's though it's a fluid transition because all of a sudden it, it's a combination of just our own uh questioning where we are but just with then the filmmaking of the mood the music the characters starting to suspect it and that's just sort of like a, a Nightmare on Elm Street thing of a, yeah. a, a, what's what's more specific than a formula. <laughs> but um, just something that these movies do always have to do. It's those. It's their bread yeah, and the, butter, it's, baby. It's the wandering through a dream moments or sequences is specifically it. Like it's got such a distinct feel. Um, I guess for some context, we didn't say for these films, I've um, I've only watched the intro or like the first 10 minutes of the remake with Rooney Mara, the 2010 remake, oh, yeah, I think yeah, it yeah. was. Have you seen it's that? problematic. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't saw it. watch it. it. I couldn't it's, watch it after that intro. But why I just mentioned it is because even in that one, though, they're doing 
this yes. thing of the the Nightmare on Elm Street thing. And it's it's funny. I want to say just because like all of them just do it so well that I don't know if it's not that it's not hard to do, but it's just something that's so uh, <laughs> it just works so well and is easy to love. And we there's always that such a clear progression within that's never not satisfying of starting off and everything's normal. And then by the end, they're, they just have to escape from Freddy or they, they fall to his clutches. It's great. And we yeah, always get I, the, the, the sort of almost, um, sorry, the like, uh, within that they can be satisfying because more characters revealed too. Like if they have their own specific fears or insecurities, those will start to play into those moments that way, whether it's like how, um, that's right. Yeah. Uh, how her Kristen's mother, you know, is kind of recurring oh. in her nightmares. I love that whole sequence when Freddie kills her mom. Yeah. So well, okay. Good. So then for me, I just kind of distinguish it as the, the literal dream wanderings is what I call them mm-hmm. themselves as a, a tenant of these films. But then there's just simply the, the gimmickry slash the visuals of what that all allows. And yeah. I mean, just to start going down the list for this one, because that's just such the bread and butter of this movie. And you have all the different kids, so you can have that variation of how he's picking on them and the visuals that are used or whatever. But that second dream that Kristen has in particular that's earlier on, it's just, it's it's so good. It just sets the, the little girls so well. one. Um, I think, she, yeah, she appears again, I think, but it's where it like starts off with the tricycle uh, melting yeah, yeah. and the, oh, like, the yes. lines yeah, of yeah, blood yeah. it's going through. And then the floor and then the wall just gets sort of torn by an invisible force. It looks and then so good. This, right. And then wait, that looks so good. But then it was what gets me and looks so incredible is the the snake Freddy worm. <laughs> The, whatever that is that just folds on just rah, rah, like starts consuming yep. her is this the perfect mouth size to consume her like that's just incredible and like of course i mean just to, to mention it don't need to mention it more but the fact that it's practical just uh it makes it all that much more wonderful yeah it's pretty good the the yeah and that i think that kind of comes probably at like maybe around the the break into the second act ish because that that's a little earlier yeah it's the moment of sort of realization that she has this power and she pulls nancy into that dream and nancy saves her mm. like the moment that happens i'm like oh hell yes we're in like a new realm of of like how we deal with freddy like yeah, it's again, so it's, much more exciting team up the sequel the sequel is escalating what can be done in this world. and But while staying rooted to the, the world of the idea of dreams and how dreams work and not taking any too huge leaps there, but just the appropriate sequelizing levels of leaps. Well, lucid dreaming, exactly. shared, shared dreaming yeah. slash lucid dreaming, yeah. To, to the point of, you know, why and how a, a, a third installment is is good or like, you know, is uh, successful in, in whatever they've decided to do. This really is, a, I think, a great example of that. Taking the, the basic tenets of the previous movies and giving power back to the, the 
the victims or whatever you want to call them of those movies. Because like what makes the first one exciting is that Nancy wins out in the end, right? Like against all odds, she shouldn't be able to win because like she, like she's a teenager and Freddie is a mystical dream monster. Like how do you fight that? And then she does, right? She solves it on her own. That's awesome. But then you do it again in the second one, which wasn't great. Um, and it's kind of the same basic like rules and and you know fight. So to then turn the tables effectively on the bad guy in the third one is so it's so cathartic because we go, oh awesome, now we have a whole movie where they have a fighting chance. Rather than spending the whole time waiting for them to figure out how to beat him, they are active in the fight throughout with some like edge. Like they have a little bit of power on their side and that's super exciting. It's like an, a logical uh, evolution of how you lay out these types of stories. Absolutely. Actually, all that is a good transition to, I think um, what I was saying about my theory why this film maybe feels more why you remembered it being more intense or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, than it is. I think it still is intense, but not necessarily maybe in it's over the top explicit violence though. You know, you could say it's still, (laughs) it's still there, but, um, but it's the fact that how, how cruel the kills seem is why there that's, that's, where that that intensity and meanness and just sort of hopelessness yeah. comes from. So, well, yeah, why you were just saying what you were just saying relates to that is we get so caught up in like you're saying the um, their superpowers and the sort of chance of them being able to defeat Freddy and just rooting for them and being so excited as as their sort of. Um, you know, in character arc terms, they're like maybe they're more actualization of stepping mm, into. Mm-hmm. They're also like, for example, we have the the Dungeons and Dragons like guy, wizard you know, master, the the wizard master, who in his dream we see him. Yay! He finally steps into it. He embraces it. I am the wizard master. He's like owning himself. We're rooting for him. We're like this guy's made it. He's shooting the magic at Freddy, but. No, it ain't enough. Freddy still, like, as soon as he gets close enough, brutally murders him. Yep. And there is that that meanness and cruelty in seeing that all the time. Same with just, I mean, that's, that's anyone who dies in this film. Where, I don't know, I think that's where, that's maybe, maybe the Wes Craven kind of more just sort of deep, unnerving horror side that's that half to the story. So despite the other half, the direction that they're starting to put the franchise in of being a bit more fun and just sort of pushing the sort of, um, <laughs> I don't know, Freddy's, Freddy's humor and all that. This one, yeah, it, it's still very much rooted in that no, um, anyone can still die. Like we feel the stakes because of that, that cruelty. Well, we like an underdog. Right. Typically speaking. And we like when an underdog has shows up with a fighting chance, but that doesn't mean that they're just going to win. Like they Mm -hmm. still have to fight and they're still the underdog. And I think that's 
part of this construct with this one in particular that is so exciting. Um, it's the same kind of reason why the Avengers, the first Avengers movie is, is so exciting and fun because they all individually have powers and stuff, but like the only way they're going to fight this much bigger threat is if they can like come together as a team and like, you know, overcome as the underdogs, as a group, this bigger threat. And so it's a, it's a very, like you see it in a lot of sports movies too, right? Like the bad dudes bears. It's the same kind of thing. It's like, they shouldn't be able to win, but they, you know, they dig down deep and they come together as a team and they overcome their, you know, their challenge. So like, that's always really fun and exciting. And it's so, I think really smart to put that into a horror film. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, just because we kind of moved on from the visuals, just to wrap up some more of those and the the gimmicks and the deaths mm-hmm. themselves. Just special <laughs> shout out to the some of the standout stop motion effects. So like, I love the little Freddie marionette Ugh. that jumps down. It's just, there's something so um, I don't know that just plays off the idea that Freddie's. It's just all about the fun for him because, like, a marionette. It's it's more harmless, you know, in its size than when he's the giant snake or when he's a literal giant, you know, right. Um, in the later in the sequence, but just that he's, he's this kind of fiendish to just use that. He would jump into a little marionette and just the way it looks <laughs> is so great. Um, I find it yeah. very, very scary. The stop <laughs> for some reason, the stop motion stuff looks scarier to me than any cgi i don't know what that is like maybe it's a nostalgia thing like because that's what we grew up seeing and it was terrifying when you're seeing that as a little kid but like even still like the skeleton at the end like the freddy skeleton at the end is really scary looking to me that was that was the other one i was gonna say yeah the jason and the argonauts call it that s skeleton fight at the end was the other stop motion i love it shout out I don't know. I just think it could be that that idea that it, they're they're like slow motion puppets in a way. Where like when you're, which you know, you look at like a a puppet is just an extension of a performance of the idea of just almost like putting on a costume and acting in it. And I think further stop motion is like you're doing a performance from an actual person you're giving you're you're putting a spirit directly into something yeah. <laughs> and it can yeah. be easy to to forget that's happening when it's just this sort of like frame by frame um you know that's why i say it's in that but in slow motion um i don't know we, we've debated this in other episodes too of just sort of sure, bringing up yeah. the question well like well can't you put that in cg hasn't that been done but yeah that's for whatever that's worth a um it's there's there's still that direct artist as conjurer to right, the right. physical thing in front of them with stop motion. It's great. Yeah, Any it's other, cool. uh, other well, sequences just to, you wanted to shout you out? Know, carry on with the, the marionette thing. That pulling the, whatever you want to call it, the strings, but like the strings that are ripped out of his body and tendons or whatever they are, is that one got under my skin. Oh my God. And just talk about another great example of how, of what I mean when I say cruelty. Yeah. Where it's just like, it's sick what he's doing. It's great and that he walks them all the way out to that ledge. And it's so smart too in movie terms of 
just how helpless they all are where you have all the kids there screaming yeah. at him, trying to help him, helpless to do anything. I mean, that really felt kind of on the same level to me as the like the midsummer torture stuff where suddenly you're just going, oh, that's we've crossed over into a realm of just like horrible torture, right? Like this is not something humans should do to each other. And like in this one, I guess you can give it a little bit of an allowance because it's this mystical dream thing happening. But still, it's it's horrifying. Yeah. Uh, But I like it. (laughs) Because that's what we're doing here. Yeah. (laughs) Good. Um, the uh, you know what one of my favorite shots in the movie is is toward the end when they th- they kind of think that they've got him and they've won, and then he they they walk into the or may I can't remember the sequencing exactly. It's when they get trapped in the hallway of mirrors, and they all get pulled into the mirrors, and then Joey finds his voice and yells, and the mirrors break. The shot, oh, the so low cool. shot of that hallway and all of them busting back through the mirrors is so cool looking. I don't know why. Like, I think part of it is just light reflecting everywhere and like this sort of almost disco ball effect of of a million little reflective things and probably a, a slightly cranked up camera speed when they shot it. So it's got a little more, it's a little more crisp looking. It just looks so cool. I love yeah. it. It's my favorite shot. I mean, just, I I love that hallway so much with the mirrors hanging up. I mean, that just encapsulates kind of like, you know, what we were saying earlier about the wandering of these dream spaces. Yes. Just that these, something about, I don't know if it's as simple as just like the fog machine and having it be a lot of the times a, 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 a set, but yeah, I don't know. You just feel like you're in the nightmare in these these spaces. And that hallway yeah. was a especially good example of that. Well, I, I recently asked specifically, like, I, I, you know, I hear this term liminal space a lot. Um, and I'm always like, just, just, I just don't even think I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever that is. But I made a point to ask my girlfriend, who's a fine artist and knows about these things. And she explained pretty simply, it's, you know, it's anywhere that you can kind of pass through that doesn't really have a purpose other than to be passed through. And I'm like, man, that just that alone makes me more (laughs) excited. The idea of that, like now I'm like a little obsessed with liminal spaces, like hallways. And they're always the places that I end up in my dreams. So I'm like, that's probably why it's so cool when you see it in a movie it's like you're putting people into a space that they're not really meant to be doing something you know of of importance in like as as a rule the liminal space is just for them to get from point a to b but when you like have that liminal space as your setting for like an event it's it makes it much much more eerie and like uncomfortable and just weird and i love that whole idea. So like putting them in a, a, putting them in this, this closed hallway, something that shouldn't like hallways shouldn't generally be closed, right? Like that they're, that's not their purpose to be a closed space and then putting mirrors everywhere to like open that space, but keep it closed at the same time. Like all of that is just brilliant to me. 
it's, it makes, it's affecting our brains on such an intensely like deep, weird level. I can only think of uh, the red room in Twin Peaks. It's a it's a transitionary space that yep. you're trapped in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I really like. I just I think any time. I mean, I love movies about dreams or about realms and all that stuff, and I've said that a million times. But anytime you can hone in on the components that we repeatedly experience in dreams, um, there's one that I have a lot. And they actually, there's a shot in this movie that is that thing. And I'm like, damn, they like, they really, at least on some level, whether purposeful or not, or just subconscious, they are creating imagery that does directly go back to imagery that I've had in my dreams. Is it the shot of the hallway you're talking about? No, in the, in one, there's one shot where, um, Kristen is, she, she enters into the house, Nancy's old house, and she's chasing after the little girl. Little girl goes down into the basement and there's a shot from like the bottom of the stairs of the basement looking up as she comes through the door and the l- there's only light coming through the door at the top of the stairs and she has to make her way down these stairs and and the walls are like gray and as she descends she's descending into just like pitch darkness right there's no light at the bottom of the frame i've had a number of dreams where i've had to be at the top of either a set of stairs or a ramp and it's all almost always cement so it's just gray space and there's only light coming from above and you are descending into just an abyss of darkness and a lot of the time at the bottom of that abyss there's a turn around a corner into darkness and like they basically do that in that those like two shots they do exactly the thing that i've seen in my dreams Many, many times. And these are dreams that, like, terrify me for some reason. It's like, I guess it's just the thing of, like, what's down in the darkness around the corner that you can't see. But, man, like, putting that, I don't know, the fact that that's in these movies just sort of, for me, it, it extends the the broader, almost collective consciousness idea of of dreams and nightmares and whatever that is. And I think it's cool. I wonder if um, one of the more universally uh, felt spaces in that sense is just like the, what's, what is the uh, signature space for these films is the boiler room, right? uh, The pipes littered uh, basement space. Like that's just all these movies, they do it. But as soon as they're in that space, you immediately just feel like I'm in a nightmare I've had. Yep. Yeah. There's something, Um, there's something really primal about it. Um, I mean, I recently found out that I'm like physically terrified by caves. I didn't know this until I went exploring. We like went to a, like a, a cave system in, in where was it? New Mexico. And I, it took me like a number of minutes to like calm myself down to actually be like, we're safe. There's no big deal. I can, I can go walk through this cave. I I was like, what is happening? (laughs) So there's something deeply like primal about this notion of like 
entering into a dark enclosed space with like one exit behind you. Yeah. There's symbolism, there's symbolism to it for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess a bit more to, to sort of extend into a different area of dream related, uh, things that work in this film, tie it to not just in the sense of being a, a, a third one in the franchise being a sequel, but just in that general sense of that term, I like to use what's the promise of the premise or how is this film successfully pursuing potent possibilities? That triple P that's what you gotta do in any movie for it to, to really be chugging along, especially in those like, they're, they're just what you want from this story, what you want to see, what's the thing that you can only do in this movie. And so, I mean, we've already sort of brought it up, but to say it specifically, the, the shared dream session is just so satisfying in that sense. And that comes right in the midpoint yeah. for this one too. But it's just so cool. You think, okay, yeah, we have the group of people. They all have to work together. We know there's dreams going on. Yes, one of them has a super, quote, unquote, superpower ability <laughs> to unite themselves in the dreams. And then that continues to where it makes so sense, just like I've, I've to an extent gotten into lucid dreaming. I haven't been too successful at like being able to do it regularly or anything, but it's a whole, there's a whole world. It's a whole thing people are into lucid dreaming, which is where you're aware you're dreaming when you're dreaming. So you can um, ground yourself with your waking mind in your dream to essentially try to do whatever, or at least interact with that dream from that state of consciousness, your waking consciousness, rather than getting caught up with it. Like it's a actually reality. So them, so, so just what, yeah, what's so cool, it ties into that idea is that they, you can use dream powers. Like that's, <laughs> you know, that's, that's an actual thing, you know, and it's, it, 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 it does represent that sort of psychological actualization leap that one might have to make um, in the, in, in the real life sense of like, let's say like um, uh, Kristen's character, you know, she's, she's uh i mean i mean i guess this this goes for all of them but you know hers is the ability to be like super good at gymnastics or whatever jump all around like parkour style but in the dream you know we see with all of them it's not necessarily just as simple as being like oh uh i'm in a dream great so i can just do this thing you still even within the dream have to sort of um step up to this belief in yourself that you have that power in you, that you can do this thing. So I don't know. It's just so smart and just how it, it, it uses that as a device, but it's not as simple as just like once they're in the dream, it's as simple as just they're, they're they got, it's no problem. It's something they still have to, to find in themselves to successfully execute. Yeah. They have to overcome doubt in a world that has, bred doubt into them <laughs> yeah exactly so uh yeah perfectly said great so more yeah just of, of those that, that the dream session 
Oh, I mean, and I guess we already talked about just but the way that that specific middle dream session transitions into the group dream session, how that transitions into a group nightmare is just so much fun and satisfying. It's just, it's kind of silly and stupid, but the, the way he sees the little, um, the, the, the balls, the metal balls that click together <laughs> yeah, yeah. are the thing that like lets them know they're still in a dream. It's so funny. I was, but that moment, those types of moments in these movies are the things that make me go, oh, oh, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, here exactly. we go. <laughs> They're fun. Yeah. Uh, in those, I, I loved how every time they stepped into one of their group sessions, it, it became a thing. They always say straight talk only in this room or straight talk only in here. I yeah. like that. This is a fun little <laughs> recurring thing. Yeah. Uh, well, Last little thing I had was, or no, I guess a couple more things. Just, I thought, you know, got to shout out John Saxon. And it was so fun. What, like, we were talking about how well they developed or showed the evolution of Nancy's character. I feel like what they did with our ex cop, he's a (laughs) John Saxon character, Nancy's dad. It was so perfect. I feel like he was either going to go in one of two directions, either where he's like completely self fulfilled now, he's like, you know, working in some sort of other field that it does. He's trying to like put, you know, be like Nancy, push forward this, this other stuff, helping kids out. Or he's just going to have gone completely destitute <laughs> in this case <laughs> at a bar, alcoholic, all that good stuff. But I don't know, just, just that they chose that extreme felt somehow yeah. fitting and right for his character. I appreciated that. Yeah. In a way he can't, um, move on and actualize because he's still committed a, a, you know, a sin, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. So and he's got to kind mean, of live with that. It makes sense for his character that something so, uh, hard to believe he's, uh, would instantly become sort of in denial about right. after it happened and would question his own, um, ability to perceive. So then, um, I think, yeah, then I think this is the last thing I had just on the ending and just sort of this speaks to maybe that this franchise in particular, I think why it can work so well as a franchise is how more so than I think Jason and Michael Myers is it just makes sense how Freddy works in such a way where you can never defeat him. You only sort of can like temporarily overcome his power, like his power sort of comes in ebbs and flows where he gains power and strength and then that can be defeated, but then it's still always going to exist and is always going to come back. So, yeah, yeah he's I, sort I of, um, one. he's almost like, what's a good example? Well, regardless, he feeds off of the fear and the sort of the souls of the people that he's, um, inflicting these you know this stuff onto and so i think it's cool that he's he's just sort of like the more you feed him the more powerful he gets if you find a way to starve him or if you find a way to break that connection he gets super weak and kind of goes away but it's he's not gone (laughs) right because it's built in with his premise he's more than just a physical body right and so so that way we always get the end tease whether it's in, in this one it's the the light inside the miniature of Nancy's house <laughs> turning back on. Speaking of which, I 
absolutely love how that little house looks. <laughs> it's great. all throughout, like even the beginning when she's making it, it just looks so cool. Yeah. I drive by our- that house all the time. I like I will make a point when I'm passing that area, which is fairly close to where we live. Um I'll be like, yeah, I'll go down this street instead. <laughs> yeah, no, ditto. It's Give when it I'm driving wave. around driving around out of towners too. It's always easy to, yeah, to swing yeah, exactly. by and point out <laughs> right here in Hollywood. Cool. All right. Well, you got anything else? What worked for you? Um, no, just I guess sort of a general we sort of already said this, but shout out to all the the kids. Like the performances are all cool. Like they're fun, man. They're all doing their own little thing. Great. I like it. <laughs> all right. Well, with that, I think we can move on to our next section then. What did not work? It's not ready yet. Seems to work okay. No, something important's missing. Look, I have just one thing that stands out. Everything else I'm like forgiving of or or don't care about. But the guy who plays the doctor. Tim, this is what I was exactly going to say. I'm sorry, but like... First of all, it was super distracting that he looks like Bill Maher. I'm <laughs> like, is this Bill like, Maher's actual brother in real life? I kept thinking almost like he's a Judge Reinhold type or something. God, I don't know. but he just not uh, like, I'm sorry to him. Craig Wasson, Wasson. I don't know how you say his last Wasson. name. Wasson. Nothing against him as a human being, but this is just not a good performance by him. And part of that is not his fault. It's a terribly written character. Okay, great. I I think I'm on. I was going to admit that was going to be the first thing I was going to mention if you (laughs) didn't start speaking first was yes, I but I phrased it more as it just felt like a more a missed opportunity in the casting. A hundred percent. I don't know if I necessarily put it on how it's written like you or whatever. I just see it as like this is the role where we want the sort of Donald Pleasance equivalent for this yes. film. Where just some some actor that's just, I don't know, more more memorable, carries stuff well, they they can they can slip right in. They make the role from just <laughs> it's it's not um yeah, they make it despite whatever the dialogue may be. They make it great. Yeah. So missed opportunity is more um yeah how I looked at it. I think the a big flaw in it is that they kind of they middled on what his general motivations are and they kind of made him this I don't know he's like is he in love with Nancy is he interested in her is that what's going on and that's what's sort of motivating his decision making into like allowing this stuff to happen cuz like that never turns into anything so who knows if that's true and it shouldn't be the linchpin of his motivation if that was the intention. That's a bad intention to have. Right. It seems like that's I was wondering that, too. And it seems like maybe just in that one specific moment where, you know, she makes the big deal out of please just trust me, like forget everything you thought you've known. Just just to be in that headspace for me. Trust me. But then once, uh, you know, once it leads to them 
getting let go or or whatever around there, he immediately says something that would suggest he wasn't actually doing that, that he was just sort of saying it to, just because he was willing to entertain her, you know, is is something like that. It feels, and I may be wrong, but it feels like his willingness to entertain her is based on him being like, I don't really believe you and I don't really think that what you're saying is right, but man, you're good looking and I like hanging out with you. Like it, I don't know if that's inferred. I don't know if that's sort of in the writing somehow. I I don't know. Like, and maybe I'm placing that onto the performance or the direction or whatever, but like, it just doesn't, it just doesn't feel like it matches up to the tone of the rest of the movie. No. I mean, yeah, I think maybe from that was just kind of a, a weird, like, repercussion of i think they did have a more explicit romance in like an earlier draft maybe yeah um i think they shot a kissing scene but it like didn't go past that but anyway it's not so much like whether that's where his character is at or not that killed it for me but just the movie not acknowledging yeah that's his 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 trek like that's what i mean the middle like, of that it's like wh- yeah <laughs> right if he really was just like shoot, I was only doing this because I liked you, then like <laughs> that that should be a bit more of just where we observe him clearly being at. But They should have had John um, Saxon be like, I know where you're coming from, you motherfucker. <laughs> you eyeballing my daughter. <laughs> Which again, it's funny, he, like you kind of feel that from him, in a, but <laughs> right. maybe, maybe that's just reading into it, but I don't know. Anyway, yeah, just as this is the casting missed opportunity. And I feel like if that was, you know, better, different casting, that is an example of the kind of thing an actor would just sort of inherently just sort of maybe make more of a choice with and then just, you know, that that'd be enough for all that. Yeah. Key in on any of those turns for his character and make a decision one way or the other. All right. Agreed. Well, on you know who would have been good? Who would have been good in that role is um, somebody like Tim Daly. Do you know who Tim Daly is? He was in Wings. Um, <laughs> he's got that kind of like, he's pretty serious, but he's super earnest. And you kind of, you know, he's like, um, he's going to kind of stick to the rules as long as he can, <laughs> but he's willing to listen. Tim Daly. That's, I mean, I mentioned him earlier, reminded me of, I was, I thought Judge Reinhold. Someone like that where it's like yeah, yeah. kind of kind of you, you dislike them, but then if they but that you they can grow on you in a weird way. Anyway. Yeah. Um well speaking of John Saxon, I mentioned something. I don't know, this might be a more worked didn't work for me, because it's like when it first happens, you're just kind of like, oh my God, this is too much of this direction. When at the end, it's like he appears like before Nancy, like an angel or oh, something. Dude. And it's like, he literally like floats down. It looks like it's like a, I don't know what the reference would be, but like a funnier die sketch or Tim and Eric thing. Like the way he like floats down and like, I think there's little sparkles or there stars. There are sparkles around him. He's, he is Glenda the Good Witching down in front of Nancy, <laughs> yeah, exactly. and it's so dorky looking. Like, I want a gif of that so bad, though, at the same time, which is maybe the the worked for me since. But but then, you know, it's so hokey, it takes you out of it. But then we realize it's actually Freddy impersonating him. So then does that make it okay that yes, it's just it, Freddy? Yes, it does. 
effing him, you know, with yeah. him like that. Freddie is making fun of the idea of John Saxon glending down to <laughs> Nancy. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> it's all could, one big just taking the piss out of it. Yeah, you can see how that's uh, a, a worked, a, a, a didn't work, <laughs> then a worked, I yeah. guess. Um, <laughs> last little, little thing I had. Sorry to this, the, sorry, this is just so like, I don't know if it's persnickety or not, but I had the same complaint in a scene for Damien Omen 2 that just sort of, uh, even though it, it seems like it should be insignificant, greatly breaks the verisimilitude of any sort of reality this is mm. taking place in. How connected, how grounded to we are, like our reality, a reality, a place where I can realistically relate to this these characters. Something that's kind of a deal breaker for me in that sense is if just like you use this like canned music for background scenes that it's supposed to be diegetic music. I get it. You can't get the rights to Bruce Springsteen or whatever, but like when they're at the bar getting John Saxon to get him, there's this like the hokiest canned rock music playing, (laughs) stock music. And it immediately just takes me right out of the film. I know it's that could be picky, but hey, just this is subjective. When I'm watching it, that takes me right out of the movie. I mean, to be honest, for me, the general music in this by the end of the the movie, I was just I was just over it. I was like, I hate this synthesizer because initially the movie starts and they and they do the two sort of themes from the original you know there's the freddy theme and there's the nursery rhyme theme and those are so good but they never they don't really use those as i mean the nursery rhyme a little bit but the the other one in particular which is really the great theme of freddy they don't use it as a recurring chorus you know like throughout and they use just this pretty lame synth undertone stuff. And I I just don't like it. I'm like, I get why you do it and I get why it is of its time. But man, it sucks. <laughs> I kind of have a love-hate relationship with the music. I figure you one. would, but it just bugs me out. I'm like... You, I don't know. Well, you know who the composer is. I don't remember. Angelo Badalamenti. Should I know who that is? David Lynch's composer. Oh, oh my God. That actually makes a lot of sense. So it's, it, it makes me think like, I know Angelo Badalamenti. Angelo, he can, he can get there for sure. Like, I mean, it's it's iconic that that twin peaks theme like yeah but you know what that does he's into it exactly he pit in in twin peaks he picks like three you know refrains that he just hammers over and over and over again and like that allows us to sort of hang on to something we don't get repeated refrains in this movie well i was i think it annoys me Maybe that's an aspect to it as far as the, the the themes or lack thereof within. I don't know. I just see it as kind of like maybe a a, a lack of 
or misguided just direction, I guess, on the director's part. I don't know. That's lack projecting. of direction. Yeah, where it's like Angelo. I can only say his name like Angelo Badalamenti, but his like I know like we know he can get there, and I yeah. think he does moments throughout this but there are other moments that just feel like it's just kind of not it's not pulling like music is its job is to pull out the sort of like right the 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 horror the isness that is there so we can plug like like how we were just praising all the the music for friday the 13th how iconic and classic and effective that is for those films, that consistent composer they have. So I don't know. It's this sort of moment by moment, very hit or miss for me, where it's just always almost like chance whether he was, or who knows why, but the moments where he felt really keyed in and pulling out the whore and others mm-hmm. were just felt kind of like a slapdash. I mean, not slapdash, but just wasn't wasn't keyed in. It wasn't 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 doing anything more than just kind of here's a here's a scary track. Right. I mean, for me, I think with a third movie like this in a franchise with such a distinct thematic refrain that that is the the Freddy refrain, I guess. I get why you want to lean away from you, like overdoing it, but I think the key is to to take a th- if you're in a third movie where you don't want to just rinse and repeat no problem. Take the refrain and musically play around with it. Like, like do things with it. Like, put it in a different, um, not key, but in a different, yeah, sort of in a different key. Like, change, change it to, um, you know, a different scale structure so that though that refrain feels different over different chords or whatever. Like anything to just sort of expand but change. Don't just throw it out. It's so good. And certainly don't throw it out for rote, nothing like track, which is what I felt like we got. Like, or write a new theme for this movie, like for the Dream Warriors. Give them a hero theme, give them something. And not having that, I just think it kills the vibes, man. Well, we had our end credit music. <laughs> it could be our okay, <laughs> our Dream Warriors theme, our rockin' eighties, yeah, anthem. So I don't know. It's music. In music is one of those ones that really, when it's done in a way that is unpleasing to me, it really bothers me. So whatever. Yeah. Great. All right. Well, it feels like we're ready for our next yeah. section here. All right. Here we go. Things of note. This should be interesting. Have you watched that full documentary, like almost series that that just goes through part by part on like this whole the whole franchise? It was on Shutter, and there's like a Friday the Thirteenth one, and there's a Nightmare on Elm Street one. I don't think so. No. Okay, it's cool. I would like that to. W- it's really, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. But anyway, I just asked in case there was anything you remembered from it. But basically, what I the the I guess an overall thing that I remember from it um, was just sort of it was really cool getting the history of New Line and its president Bob Shea, hmm. and just 
is is this neat where they new line they yeah they were they were working with the business model of, of course like you have to do but they did seem really um enthused about trying to make cool stuff <laughs> that was one takeaway that i got so it's neat that uh yeah i don't know this this film came from all that so anyway i recommend that um yeah, i'd like to watch that i mean i kind of want to watch all of them again it's been 15-ish, 14-ish years since I <laughs> sat and like went through each one, like one a day. Well, that's the way to do it is watch them all and then watch this documentary afterwards. Right? Man. <laughs> I think it's pretty interesting too, like just how this one in particular came about because the the lack of success of the sequel and Wes Craven was not a part of the sequel. I think his whole rationale is he didn't which is kind of ironic he like didn't want to be a part of a franchise (laughs) and now we're like uh but that's a thing that you've done a lot of now like in your career anyway so i get it young Wes craven didn't want to be a part of a franchise um coming back after the second one kind of not working and like having a script and and signing on and all of that even in spite of all that like the final product apparently is quite different from the script that he presented. Like, um, who are the other guys who came in? Um, what's his name? It's a Bruce Wagner, name. Frank Darabont. Darabont. Yeah. Like they apparently really kind of, de- uh, deviated from Craven's script. And it seems like from what I'm reading, that a lot of what ended up in the new nightmare or no which one is the one where the it's meta it's like breaking the fourth wall new that's nightmare, new yeah. nightmare yeah a lot of what ended up in there was originally meant to be in this one right i mean yeah there's those literal story elements but it sounds like the sort of um the where to kind of mention this the sort of polarity or two sides of what they are each bringing to the table was Wes craven making it all as explicitly dark and cruel as the word I was using and, and just more in tone with the first one. And then the, the other guys pushing it in the direction of just kind of having fun with Freddie and what he can offer. So this is, this is cool. It's the transitionary middle ground. Yeah. But like also just what we said too, with the third ones, it's almost like they're honing in on exactly what the promise of the premise can be for, yeah this character, this franchise. And decisions which, um, were made. Yeah, which again, I mean, now, you know, coming right off of Friday the 13th, part three, I don't know. I think there's something really special about both of these where it's it's just that sweet middle ground before they sort of it, have gone off too far. But yep. it's also like, it's it's now, it's 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 a couple movies away from just sort of setting off on the just the the search of discovery of what it is from the first one. So it's like I don't know, they're almost as as pure as they can get in their premise. That's I think that's the cool thing about these third ones. Yeah, I agree. Um and yeah, a bit more on just sort of, you know, we're catching up on uh checking in on what it means to be a part 3 and now I can kind of think of uh Whoa, how that plays out same and different in this one versus we just watched Friday the 13th part three. But like how we were saying, 
what works so well in this one is how it expands the lore without sort of giving us more than we need to. Right. Yeah. To kind of just like, okay, like whatever. It's not it's not overstepping any boundaries, making him less scary, whatever. We we talked about it earlier. But it just made me think like why again, maybe I sort of I referenced this in our Friday the thirteenth episodes where it's just like after the third one and you start trying to just like assign more lore to it. I don't there's something that's different about the premises between Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th, where Friday the 13th, it's just like the simplicity or just that that story of mother's kid is essentially killed by being bullied by camp kids, camp counselors. They're both seeking revenge. But then as those goes on, I don't know, it just the sense you get, it feels like, oh, this one person is actually the the son of one of the other kids who was there or it's I don't even know if it's that literally but it just sort of like tries to just expand on this lore in a way that I just don't think is necessary so I don't know I just thought it was interesting where Friday the 13th for me it's an example of we don't need any like added mystery or like who that there, there's this person there too it's just don't need anything beyond that exact setup I just described like you want to just keep it pure in that sense for me um whereas this one i just thought it was interesting how we could learn that little bit more about his backstory and it only seemed appropriate yeah i'm not exactly uh why would that be i think part of it is that freddie started as an evil person and so there's kind of more dimension to him in, in inherently. Right. That, He's a an actual person in a way, too. Like he has exactly. some sort of history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he was a child murderer. What why? Why? <laughs> right. Right. There is a there is a why in that, just naturally. Whereas Jason was a kid. He's just a kid who's at the mercy of some gnarly stuff. So that's a very different place to be coming from and an important distinction of like whether you can – can you expand on a kid in Jason's sort of construct? And and if you can, why? Like what are you gaining from that? And so I think that's why you you try not to actually – Leave it for what it is. Like it's it's much more basic and primal. But with Freddy, there's kind of a lot to explore in the why, right? Like, a what what makes a person become a child murderer? Like what? Like that's a whole like broad question. And we, you know, I think we see now how compelling that question is in the popularity that's arisen of like the true crime realm and people having access to information and in the modern age now where we can kind of go dive in and be like like why are serial killers the way they are like what's the psychology behind that what is what is going on and so you know with freddie you kind of have the you you have a lot of potential for that exploration Right. Freddie is someone who starts as a person who, despite all their evil acts, feels like, you know, 
they turn into their supernatural distillation of evil, yeah. you know, uh, only upon death. When though though like you have Michael Myers who we'll get into. It's I'm, he's I'm really in, curious about that. Well, he's presented in those series as like um, as Loomis always says, you know, he just already is just evil incarnate. He's just this right. like physical embodiment, uh, evil incarnate. So just starts that way. Versus, yeah, I guess that's what what you're getting at. What makes Freddy unique? It's only in his transition does he become he has a more clear clear transition point even though the others have their origin story they are more an immediate embodiment of inherent evil when freddy has some sort of evolution or is the result of some sort of other evil act too well and and you know just to sort of go in the in the metaphorical realm of of maybe it's dramaturgical to do it this way but like you know, I look at a character like Freddy and you just start you start doing the detective work of like as a director, who is this character? Why does he do what he does? And what is the implication of those definitions that you come up with in the broader storytelling world? And to me, you know, you kind of say, okay, well, he's a child murderer. That's awful. Like the worst thing. Um, what is that? What's the implication of that in a thematic realm? And we think of children as innocent and pure and sort of have the world is set out before them. They haven't, they haven't entered into that. Everything in front of them is made up purely of you, you, the parents' dreams for them and their own dreams that they build about their presumed future as they grow. Well, Freddie took that away. And so it's so smart to have the realm in which Freddie gets to torture those kids be the dream world. <laughs> right? That's why he sure. – I mean, I don't know that that was explicitly like parsed out by, the, by Wes Craven when he was creating it. But it, it works because it works. Right. Like he he got there for a reason in his creation of this. And it may be it may have been subconscious and may not have. But like we can pick it apart enough to be like, this is why it works. Wait, I think I might have I think I might have missed a little in what you're saying, because I don't I think that's a pretty tenuous connection of defining dreams and in terms of something you'd want to do with your life versus like dreams as in like the literal dreams you have. But I'm saying that these, that the, there's sort of thematic connective thread and it's pleasing, right? Like it's not something that we, the viewer need to, you know, intellectualize. It just sort of is there. It's just, mm-hmm. it's inherently there to the construct. And there's probably a, a subconscious reason as to why you, you wind these things around each other. And so I just think that that's, it's, it, it, the, the character itself and, and the, the origin of the character is, is such that it, it has lots of depth to be explored. And I think with the other two, Jason and Michael, it's just less so the case. Now, I think they've tried in various incarnations to expand on it, but it maybe doesn't work as well because they are just sort of this like 
<laughs> unstoppable force that just keeps moving forward after you. And that's scary enough as it is. We don't need yeah. to explore that too much. But Freddy's a whole nother game, right? Like he's the dream world. Like he's this he's this inescapable thing that like lives in your brain in a way. And then sometimes can break the the boundary of that and and like enter it like cross realms. It's 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 wild. It's like almost there's no limit to it. Which is also a part of dreams. You know, so like it's all just sort of wrapped up in a lot of really interesting sort of just to me, dreams are fascinating. Nightmares are fascinating. The philosophy of why they exist is fascinating. The science of why they may exist is fascinating. Like there's just a lot to pull from. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, plays to Wes Craven's strengths too. It makes sense. He made the original. Um. I just needed help, Tim, trying to make sense out of this was something that at first was in what didn't work, but then moved to what worked. But like, how coincidental is this scenario? Or is it actually just all make perfect sense if you think about it? Because we have (laughs) Nancy. Here's what could be coincidence, but maybe is just, again, how it plays out. It does make sense. because we have Nancy starts work there at the exact same time these kids start having problems, they are all the surviving Elm Street children. They are all at this exact hospital. That's, which is also, that's geographic. Right, exactly. So that, that's when I thought about it made a little more sense. And I'll then I guess this, and then this would also be a geographic that it's the exact same hospital that the raped nun had her history at sure okay great it's just all those things happen to be uh fall fall right into place for this movie i i agree i think that the uh the thinnest one in there is the nancy timing and choosing or being chosen by that particular hospital but i think you can justify it by saying area of expertise geography and maybe just a little bit of her i don't know being drawn to case like theoretically these kids cases would be on the file and so like i could get behind the idea that she sought it out a little bit you know she reads some some dream journal like science journal that's like interesting happenings over at whatever this asylum was called right which is her local asylum exactly so sure i could i can be i could get on board with it it didn't bother <laughs> me too much i get where you're coming from but it no, is it convenient didn't, it, didn't, it didn't bother me it's just like i just had to think about it for a sec to just because it's not yeah it all just kind of feels right you aren't questioning it when it's happening but i just was i was just like wait wait okay wait what exactly is going on all here i just needed that moment just to yeah i mean figure maybe it out it, for myself. maybe it could have been a cool direction i guess to go if we were this isn't really a nancy movie it's it's more a Kristen movie or more of a both team of them. it's they, a team up feel, movie yeah but as far as the, i'd say we have the two heroines it feels like totally. her and Kristen. but i think it you know you could have done something to the effect of nancy sort of 
you know, if Nancy has quote unquote overcome her dream issues by taking this drug that she's taking, I forget what it's called, like hypernicol or something like that. Hypnosil. Oh, hypnosil. (laughs) Even better. (laughs) Perfect. So let's say um, you have an opening scene. Or no, 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 not an opening scene. You have a scene shortly after we meet Kristen. And where Nancy, for whatever reason, doesn't take her hypnosil. Maybe she runs out and she didn't refill her prescription and she's like, oh no. Oh no, I'll be fine. It's I've been fine. It's over. It's been five years. Freddie's gone. She goes to sleep and she sees each of these individual kids in whatever, in her dream. And she goes, oh no, it's happening again. Then she could track them down individually and they could, they could exist in other places. They could be all over the country. But I could, I could conceive of this sort of very short get them all together in one room sequence that sh- that becomes her task and that's sort of the impetus of the the carrying on of this story like that would be cool i don't think it's necessary <laughs> no <laughs> but like if you needed that like if you needed an extra mm, 8 minutes of this movie sure <laughs> but I, I think I'm with you. You kind of alluded to it. If we were going to have any extra running time, I uh, wouldn't have minded hanging out with the kids even more. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, like like their little moment of um, playing Dungeons and Dragons, like the three of them together. Right. Like that's just, I don't know. It's That's fun. It could have set up their com- camaraderie and just what all their relationships are, a bit more or whatever. Not, not, not big enough to have put it in what did not work though. Yeah, in a way, I think the thing that I would have wanted the most, a little bit more of is there's sort of like, you know, when you're writing a a screenplay, typically you kind of like when you're introducing people, you kind of want to show them in like the three main realms of their life, right? Like work, home, and play. And however you decide to put that down, um, when you have a group... I think it's also important to show the group in those three states, right? Show them in their session. That's kind of the work session of their lives and show the dynamic there. Show them individually in their sort of homes so we get to meet them on their own, like what, wherever their, per, you know, like their point of view or their mentality is as an individual and then show them as a group in play that's sort of diametrically opposed to the work thing. And if you had had all of them in a room playing Dungeons and Dragons, or at least all of them in the room while a few of them play Dungeons and Dragons, you can get that kind of carousel effect that you get in, say, like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, where like, you know, McMurphy shows up and sees everybody like, doing their things like whatever that thing is and it gets to be a fun discovery you know scene for the audience to kind of go oh i get who these people are you can learn very quickly if you do that scene right and you and they they, you know they become endearing to us we go oh i've chosen the one the the character that's like the one i like especially in this kind of movie 
So I wish there was just that that one more scene where we got a little bit of that. Yeah, uh, that's I I really like how you put it that distinguishment of just sort of or the checking the boxes of seeing both in work quote unquote the therapy and group play too is a fun way to put it because like yeah the the only scene that I kind of think of in that context is that Dungeons and Dragons scene which was just three of them but like how great was that when we had is it is it Joey or Will is that that kid the Dungeons and Dragons kid Will is the Dungeons and Dragons kid okay how you have Will say to oh and Taryn I loved her she was so great and that that actor is amazing too but like when he says oh wait no you you have to say the part or whatever and she kind of rolls her eyes and goes like I vanquish the whatever it is yeah 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 she has to speak wizard (laughs) talk like that is just so fun and funny and endearing for all of them involved and then we even get a little shout out to Lawrence Fishburne comes in too he's in this movie oh yeah we get his interaction everywhere but like yeah that's that's a great way to put it seeing all of them more in a play because then when stuff starts to happen to each of them individually we get to also see the group care deeply and we get us like when the i forget the the name of the character who gets marionetted um well that would be uh joey then right no, 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 uh, no, no. Oh, oh, wait, wait. Yeah, I'm, I'm confusing them all. That's Kincaid, Joey, Taron. Um, I think it's Matt. No, that's Lawrence Fishburne. Philip, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, the kid <laughs> who gets, you know, who jumps off the clock tower or whatever he does. They all care, and we see them care, right? Like Joey goes running through the halls and banging on doors, and they all come a running and yelling. That's really compelling in that moment but it would be so much more kind of heartbreaking and compelling if we had a previous scene that set up their interpersonal relationships as a group and how they feel about that kid in tv a lot of the time what you see is you take the per, you know maybe two scenes earlier of this uh, you know the traumatic event and you have conflict in that scene a scene where, you know, the group gangs up on him sort of just because there's, you know, maybe there's like some conflict over something stupid. And usually it should be trivial, right? It's like, hey, man, stop using my shoelaces. Like, those are my shoelaces. It's like something totally dumb that devolves into somebody just saying something that they shouldn't, you know, being like, well, I hope you I hope you you know, hang yourself from those shoelaces, you little shit kind of thing. To then have two scenes later, the kid being marionetted by Freddy Krueger and having the group who made fun of that kid for stealing shoelaces would be that, like, you would feel it deeper to watch them watch him die because they have unresolved, um, you know, what do you call it? It's un- it's an unresolved fight, basically, that they had. Yeah. And so stuff like that really, you know, maybe that's too much for this movie. But I think when you're writing a death scene in particular or a traumatic scene and you want to feel it deeply, seeing the other characters have something to feel guilty over in that moment really enhances that a lot. Yeah. I think that's, uh, yeah, 
it's a good way to put it too when you're like you said the group session scenes they're great but they only feel like the half of it in a way right um well in that way you just described uh it's fun this movie or these these the this franchise kind of has like a back and forth with the evil dead franchise where it's like they put the the posters of the other in the background <laughs> i want to say so uh yeah i forget exactly what they do but something like that with the posters in the background but i i swear to him that there's another cross reference between the two of them which is I swear it's the same fly sound effect as the original Evil Dead when we have um, <laughs> Kristen, when Kristen sees like the rotting pig meal oh, in right. the center yeah. of the table yeah. in her nightmare as she's approaching it. We hear this like distinct fly effect. I swear, like down to its its exactitude, it's it's the same one as the original Evil Dead that famously starts with just the fly sound it probably is yeah it probably so. is <laughs> whoever was doing the foley or whatever was like hey we need a fly sound oh yeah yeah yeah. use the evil dead one that one's cool yeah anyway horror uh, fellow horror fans keep an ear out let me know you <laughs> uh, think the same thing uh great let's see what else we got here a special shout out our first Zaza Gabor <laughs> and probably only appearance in film <laughs> we're ever going to watch. I love her from her. Uh, well, she, she's just great. I know her from PB's Playhouse Christmas special. And then also she <laughs> appears alongside Dick Cavett, who's great too. So I just love that that is the the TV show that turns into the nightmare is Dick Cavett show with guest Zaza Gabor. Yeah. Who apparently <laughs> just like According to the Wikipedia, just she just showed up just kind of for the paycheck and had no idea about Freddy or even if it was a horror movie or anything. So she uh, got pretty freaked out when Robert England jumped out at her <laughs> in full paycheck. <laughs> awesome. The um, I thought it was interesting. They were going back and forth on um, the when Freddy gets the the kid who's not talking, who's like fantasizing about the nurse or Freddie's forcing the fantasy on him, you know, and posing as the nurse. Uh, they, how it is now is where Freddie, uh, or, you know, in the form of the nurse, like shoots out tongues at him and like secures <laughs> yes. him to the bed, which is great. Cause it feels on point with his whole inability to talk thing or whatever it is. Right. Right. But what it was originally going to be was like Freddie just in, female form freddy with breasts kind of thing but they said that felt too off kilter but i just thought that was it was kind of interesting because it brought up for me that feels like it's something that would totally easily fly without any thought in the later films any film after this because those fully off kilter but at the same time i don't know just with under a certain directing hand I could see that being the right kind of off kilter for this yeah. one. Like, I think you can do off kilter creepy more than just off kilter funny. I don't know. And how you'd handle Freddie with breasts and a nurse outfit. I was so sure when that scene started that once she took her shirt off and it was just boobs, that the boob reveal 
was going to be two Freddy faces, like, ah! on the boobs. <laughs> I was so sure that was going to happen, and I would have loved it. <laughs> Boob whore, I just thought of, uh, what, what did we watch where she pushes, uh, demon, Night of the Demons, where she pushes her finger through oh her my breast. God. <laughs> yes. Uh, oh, boy. Anyway, Nurse, nurse Freddy. Almost, <laughs> yeah, that'd be so close, too. so close. Uh, all right, uh, this last two little tidbits pulled from Wikipedia here, I thought were fun. This one having to do with our favorite character, Tim, Doctor Neil Gordon. <laughs> but in the 2009 comic book series, Freddy versus Jason versus Ash, the Nightmare Warriors, which sounds amazing, of course, just in that, apparently. Dr. Neil Gordon plays a major role while Nancy, Amanda Kruger, and the Dream Warriors group make cameo appearances after Jacob Johnson releases some of the spirits of Freddy Krueger's victims to help defeat him. But just like, this is so funny, This, even though we like are crazy about the, the, the actor and his depiction of the character, he's canon nonetheless and appears in this comic book that uh, could have been a a dream film, but hey, it makes me want to read the comic book. (laughs) That's awesome. And then the last little thing I had that was just fun because it ties together to uh, our our big franchises here, the last one we just talked about. Um, I mean, of course, we have, you know, the Freddy versus Jason, you know, crossover film, and the one I just talked about the comic book, but uh, this different ways they try to tie together that lore in all the different media out there. Where in Friday the Thirteenth, the game, uh, there's something called the Tommy tapes, referring to Tommy Jarvis. Where I think it's this kind of, I'm guessing it's this kind of Easter eggs you pick up along the way that just mm-hmm. sort of gives like history or whatever. Apparently, uh, Tommy Jarvis was sent to the same. Weston Hills Psychiatric Hospital to also be <laughs> cared by Dr. Neil Gordon. So in Amazing. this crossover universe, Tommy <laughs> Jarvis also went to the same hospital under the same doctor. Cool. <laughs> All right. Well, Tim, what else? Anything else you got? Anything else comes to mind on your the three coolness of this? No, not really. I do think this is this is a really good one. I mean, this is... Like, I in much, much more enjoyed this movie as a movie than Friday the 13th 3. So, you know. More kind of just with the, the, the franchise slash premise of it overall. Totally. Totally. Just the story. I just was like, oh, there's, there's more stuff that I'm into in this. Yeah. For me, it's just Taste. like, kind of like, I don't know. Almost kind of like how I said I wouldn't want to pick a, a favorite beetle, though I, I'm kind of, you know, on the side with you of what you just said. Just the appeal of Jason holding his machete, popping up, throwing a counselor through the window. <laughs> it's just, it's so much different for me than, you know, Freddy turning into a snake monster eating someone. Like it's true. It's, yeah, diff, diff, different things. Just that depends on my mood, maybe. All right, cool. Well, great. We're uh, halfway through October here. If you're listening to this live or live-ish, 
and from this point on, we'll move on to our two uh, Halloween films. We're excited to see the new one and see if uh, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, will how where we fall on the debate of it being a different sort of fan favorite, which it has the notoriety as. Great. But with all that, we like to wind down with some recommendations for each other and you. Tim, anything you'd like to recommend dead? Well, I just realized that what I was going to recommend dead, I already recommend deaded many se- uh, episodes ago, um, like episode 32. So I can't do that. So you go and I'll think of something. I will recommend dead. Actually, this relates well. You guys can connect it to what we were just talking about with uh, Ray Harryhausen fighting skeletons another film that I was just, it's a childhood staple and I never knew what the name of it was, but it's like imagery was so distinct to me just watching it as a kid, but I finally rediscovered it. It's from 1961. Ray Harry has into the effects mysterious Island. It's the one that's, Oh yes. It's it's the sequel to 20,000 leagues under the sea. So like Nemo pops up, but it's just, it's basically the one with the giant, uh, insects and crabs and stuff. It's so good. It's so <laughs> yeah, good. Right? <laughs> I, my brother and I loved that movie growing up. Me too. I haven't watched it since I was a kid, but it was really fun revisiting. Uh, so that's my recommendation. I picked it up from our friends at Videotech, the Blu-ray, Mysterious Island. Um, okay, you know what I'll do? I'll do The Void. Did I do that before? Have you seen The Void? Tim, I'll be honest with you. Maybe you can convince me otherwise. I watched like the first 10 minutes and just was like so not into something about the acting or filmmaking. I just didn't keep watching it. But I know I keep hearing good stuff about the effects or the story or whatever. It's cheesy. It's super cheesy. Like, I think it's purposefully in that weird camp realm. Okay. Well, I wasn't. Maybe because I wasn't expecting that, based of all uh, all the praise, I was. It was I get that. hard for me to engage with. No, I'm not sure that I would say that the void is good, so much as ridiculous. <laughs> and I kind of just appreciated where it goes from there because it goes, <laughs> it just goes into like, where are we? What are we doing? Realm. So I just thought it was fun. Great. Well, that's exactly what I was hoping to hear. To allow me to give it another chance nice (laughs) all right well with that we already said what we're gonna do uh in these next couple weeks move on to the halloween franchise as we move closer to halloween itself this month in the second Mm. half of october 2021 here great so uh then well all else we got to do to say to wind down here we like to say Well, of course, always thanks for being here. But aside from that, our big ask is if you made it this far and you think you might have a like-minded friend who would enjoy joining us as well, please do let them know. Help us with word of mouth. That would, uh, we'd appreciate that. But of course, that's fine if not. Anyway, (laughs) now for actual in closing here. Remember, straight talk only. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Yeah, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.